This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, uh, my name is uh, Richard Sandor, and I'm the CEO of the American Financial Exchange and lecturer in law and economics here at the University of Chicago, the Aaron Director. And I'd like to kick it off very quickly by introducing uh, our first speaker. Uh, Ellen and I, my wife, moved to Chicago 46 years ago for a one-year sabbatical. <laughs> and somehow, if 46 years have gone by, it's given us every dream that we ever had. We raised our family here, and uh, the city, it's this great university, um, and the governance of this city in particular has meant a lot. Um, the city has encouraged entrepreneurship, new ideas, financial innovation in every single respect. And it is perfect to open this colloquium with the deputy mayor of the city of Chicago, who is really driving economic development. He's an accomplished attorney, was the chief counsel at the Department of Transportation, uh, moved over to Delta Airlines and has had a storied career. And he kindly agreed, with the blessing of the mayor, to open this conference with the greetings from the city of Chicago. Please join me in welcoming Bob Rifkin. Thank you very much, uh, Richard. It's very kind of you. Um, the mayor is receiving an honorary uh, doctor of laws today in Ireland, so it's uh, unfortunate that he couldn't be here. But um, he he apparently likes lawyers more than I more than I had previously known. Um, it's an honor to welcome you uh, to our fair city, uh, and particularly to this conference, which builds on two great pillars of Chicago. It's world-class universities, represented here by the University of Chicago and its law school, and its tradition of exchanges, represented here by its newest member, the American Financial Exchange. As our financial system transitions to a new interest rate benchmark, both of your institutions are going to take the lead. And that is an integral topic to the storied, the truly storied history of the University of Chicago, the home of law and economics. So I congratulate Dean Tom, Dean Tom Miles for his leadership, and I would like to note some of the terrific speakers that you're going to have today. Randy Krosner, professor of, uh, at the Booth School and former governor of the Federal Reserve. Eric Posner, a leading legal scholar in today's keynote. Dr. David Bowman, special advisor to the board at the Federal Reserve, whose chair is going to be here Friday, I believe. Um, and thank you to the panelists who came here from New York and Texas, California, Wisconsin, 
You represent community banks, broker-dealers, major financial institutions, and leading accounting and legal firms, including Ernst & Young and Kirkland & Ellis. And also a special recognition of our foreign visitors, including a representative of the Bank of Canada. Of course, I want to especially acknowledge Dr. Richard Sander, Chairman and CEO of the American Financial Exchange and today's co-sponsor. Chicago has had a long tradition of financial innovation through its exchanges, from agricultural commodities to financial futures, and Richard has been not only an integral part of it, but he has been nicknamed in this city the father of financial futures. Actually, his wife Ellen told me last night um, that not only uh, has he founded uh, those financial exchanges and the climate exchange, of course, uh, but also apparently the first art photo auction, which, uh, which may have been what kicked off his, his career um, in exchanges. Um, <clears throat> so AFX builds on this tradition of innovation. Uh, after only two years of operation, it's gathered over 80 participants representing a trillion dollars in assets. And the members come from 36 states with brick-and-mortar presence in all corners of the U.S., from Boston to Birmingham uh, to Green Bay and to California. It also operates with transparency, providing an efficient mechanism for participants who have to have price discovery in borrowing and lending. So we're encouraged by this progress, and we hope that AFX will continue to strengthen Chicago's role as a leading financial center. Welcome to our great city, and best wishes for a productive conference. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deputy Mayor. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, Tom Miles, who's the dean of the law school, um, a scholar in law and economics. Um, he has a CV that's uh, miles long uh, and has worked in everything from securities regulation to criminal justice and criminal law. And he is indeed my boss. Please join me in, wel <laughs> in welcoming Tom Miles. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. So good afternoon and welcome. Welcome to the conference on the transition to new interest rate benchmarks. On behalf of the University of Chicago Law School, it's a pleasure to welcome you. And it's also a pleasure to co-sponsor this conference with the American Financial Exchange. This conference is a continuation of our long relationship with Dr. Sandor. Uh, as the Deputy Mayor said, the, the, the Dr. Mayor's career uh, spans many accomplishments, and his career really illustrates the power of ideas, especially ideas in law and economics. Uh, his career has always had uh, an academic component, and we are proud that he lectures for us and shares his wisdom and insight with our students. Uh, he has been repeatedly also someone whose ideas have transformed financial markets. Uh, as the Deputy Mayor mentioned, he is known as the father of derivative futures. He's also known as the father of carbon trading. And as you know, he's the founder of the American Financial Exchange. Last summer, uh, Dr. Sandor and I had a, a fireside chat conversation before an audience. Uh, and I asked him what was the key to his many successes in these many different arenas. Uh, and what he pointed out was the importance of asking important and fundamental questions and asking them persistently and pushing for answers. 
And that's very much in keeping with the tradition of the University of Chicago and especially its law school. And today's conference is a continuation of that. Uh, it's an example of asking fundamental and important questions. And particularly the question confronting this conference is a very basic one. What's the true cost of money? Who should determine that cost? And how should they go about determining it? And these fundamental and important questions implicate both economics and law. At the University of Chicago Law School, which was the birthplace of law and economics, and where we continue to be a leader in that field, through our Coase Sandor Institute. One of the Institute's namesakes, Ronald Coase, was the 1991 Nobel Laureate in Economics. And he has a very famous paper, which is about lighthouses in Britain. And now you may wonder why has the dean gone off to talk about lighthouses at a conference about interest rate benchmarks. Uh, but I would say there's a good deal of commonality between them. Professor Coase, when he wrote about lighthouses, wrote about them because at that time it was thought that lighthouses were a classic so-called public good. They were something that uh, if one person observed the light from the lighthouse, that didn't impair or prevent another person's observation of the beacon from the lighthouse, and that once the lighthouse shone its beacon, you couldn't prevent anyone from seeing it. It was a classic public good, non-excludable, non-rivalrous. And hence, it was generally thought that it was the responsibility then of the government to provide those public goods. And Professor Coase challenged that conventional wisdom and provided examples of how lighthouses had been privately provided. And Coase's claim is still debated and controversial today, but it's really become a symbol of the importance of understanding public goods and of asking fundamental questions. Uh, the transition to new interest rate benchmarks then is very much in keeping with Professor Coase's examination of lighthouses, and in several ways. First, a, a reference rate has many features of a public good. It's non-rivalrous, it's non-excludable. Once there's a benchmark for one party's, others can use it. doesn't impair its use by others. And in fact, one wants to encourage its use by others. And the great work that's already begun with the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to identify the best practices for reference rates through AFX's launch of Ameribor and through other working groups in other countries to develop new reference rates and new benchmarks is very important collaborations. And of course, the, the, the challenge of a new benchmark interest rate is certainly a very significant one, far more significant and challenging than lighthouses. It's challenging for several ways. One is that the stakes are very large. It's thought that more than $300 trillion of financial products are currently tied to LIBOR. And in addition, it's important because it's a transition. It's a transition. And so it's tempting to think the development of a new reference rate is where the work ends. And then it's just the task of lawyers to scratch out references to LIBOR and insert references to the new reference rate. It's not going to be that easy. Uh, there are a number of challenges in this area. In particular, are parties going to be able to uh, understand that a new reference rate may change valuations of uh, deals and of uh, opportunities then and introduce opportunities for the renegotiation of contractual terms as valuation change? And who can say where those negotiations will lead? It's possible that a new benchmark uh, may imply that certain contractual terms haven't been met or maybe even breached. That may require parties to provide new capital or maybe to end projects. And similarly, 
New interest rate benchmarks may have tax implications, may affect the timing of tax payments, and may also present complex questions about the structure of hedges. If a loan and the hedge don't use the same reference rate, is that going to introduce frictions? So the new reference rate is just the beginning of the work that will involve both economists and lawyers. These are very substantial questions, very challenging questions, and so it's really important for a conference like this one to occur, to bring together great minds from academia, great minds from business and from the legal uh, practice sector. And I want to thank Dr. Sandor for his vision in conceiving of this conference and his partnership in law and economics at the law school. I want to thank the whole team from AFX for their incredible efficiency in executing this conference. And at the law school, I want to thank Patrice Scott for her leadership of our institute and to Marcia Nagorski and Paul Rand for their help in bringing uh, the world's attention to this conference. So I look forward to the conversations on this fundamental and important topic, and I welcome you all on behalf of the University of Chicago Law School. Thank you, uh, Tom, for putting that in context. Uh, I just want to share with you in a few moments uh, the genesis of an idea and an exchange and the challenge that, that we face. Um, our team uh, incubates new ideas, and we had been working on water markets uh, for a couple of years when we saw a small article in the Financial Times in 2012 suggesting that perhaps LIBOR wasn't functioning as well as it should and that there were concerns that it was in fact a rate that was set by non-market forces. It was a call-around rate, and $300 trillion was priced off of estimates by 18 banks. Having grown up in this community, we thought it's really peculiar that a benchmark of such magnitude would not be set by a free market. And so we got to work uh, submitted a patent on a new benchmark, and it was a generic patent, and the lawyers asked us what we would call it, this free market, transparent, regulated uh, exchange. We said we'd call it the American Financial Exchange, and we would term the reference rate to have a national character. London had LIBOR, Europe had Eurobor, even China had Chibor, and there was no American interest rate. How peculiar that 22% of the world's GDP didn't have its own reference rate and was set by multinational banks. So we trademarked Ameribor, and that began a three-year odyssey because we thought the attention should start with the small to medium-sized banks, that these 6,000 institutions provided a disproportionate share of job creation, new businesses, etc. 
they financed uh, small businesses in Alabama and in Texas and Wisconsin and Chicago and California and in Boston. And there was not a reference rate for them. And perhaps that reference rate could be expanded to an interest rate in general for America. We ultimately spent three years testing the idea. We went around. People said we were early. We responded by saying, if you want to be on time, you have to be early. You have to <laughs> wait for that moment, but you have to be prepared to seize it. People said the idea was uninteresting because interest rates were zero and all of the financing of the banking system and its reserves were done with government entities. And we said that was their proper role in a crisis, but as we emerge from this crisis, perhaps the private sector could contribute to a competitively free market, as Tom said, to perhaps price not soybeans or corn or equities, but perhaps the most fundamental thing we have, our medium of exchange. What would the marginal cost of a dollar did? We did our homework. We went around. We got a, a lot of first movers involved, many in this room, okay? Some here in Chicago, like MB, some from Texas, like Frostbank and some from Wisconsin, some from Alabama, and they came from each end of the country, and we started and opened for business uh, in December two years ago with six hardy members and trading five and ten million dollars a day. Last month, uh, we hit an average of over 500 million, and I couldn't imagine a more propitious moment to start this conference because we traded $780 million yesterday. Our members collectively have a trillion dollars or more in assets. There's 83 of them. As the deputy mayor indicated, they're from all parts of the country. We started going down and forming the exchange and said, if we need this, we have to, in the coast tradition, build up a regulatory framework and an exchange and an electronic platform that would minimize transaction costs. Because those of us at the University of Chicago know that that is the ultimate goal. We partnered with the CBOE. So there'd be a compliance department of a securities and commodities exchange that would monitor these trades one by one and that they would be transparent and freely accessible to all of our members. We got on a plane with a, a renowned lawyer from Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, Raj Cohn, we briefed the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, the SEC, the CFTC, all in advance of launching. And so we believe we set the framework 
for the, the exchange to grow and to hopefully serve as a benchmark. In the last three minutes, the gods seem to have aligned themselves to point to this day. <laughs> um, on one of those visits to Washington, Robert Albertson uh, and I stopped in at Dr. David Bowman's office. The, he was the uh, chief uh, advisor to Governor Powell uh, about eight months earlier had called us and said, we understand that you're working on a benchmark and the governor would like to know a little bit about it. And he said, um, but we haven't read anything or heard of anything. Why is that? And I said, we've been hiding. <laughs> and... Uh, and he said, why so? And the conversation more or less was that while we had been invited to participate in the Alternative Rates Committee, we chose first to prove the concept before we spoke about the concept, that the argument would be much more compelling if we didn't talk about it as a theory, but spoke about it when the deal was done. We both agreed that SOFR and Ameribor were in transition. We both agreed that in the July speech by the Bank of England that the day was limited for LIBOR and it would stop being published in 2021, that we had to begin preparations right now, right here, as soon as possible to prepare all of the practitioners for a transition. LIBOR might stay around, but there was a risk-free rate, a secured rate that the Fed was working on. There was an unsecured overnight rate that we were working on. And I asked David if he would come out and keynote a conference. And I want to say how important it is as an exchange to engage in public dialogue. Our regulators are the public, are the users, are the exchanges. And part of the role of an exchange is to educate. It's to bring disparate opinions together. It's to come to consensus on everything from product design to paperwork to develop new entries uh, in books that haven't been written, and it's to educate students as well as our regulators and our senators and, and representatives in, con in Congress. The purpose of this meeting is to really set the initialization conditions for a potential transact, transition from LIBOR to SOFOR and Ameribor, to think about that. Before introducing the speakers, uh, and particularly our keynote, I want to say how grateful I am to the law school, Tom, for everything you've done in providing this important forum. To Kurtree Scott, we're um, for the support, Marsha, for every, all of your team that have done so much. 
for Kirkland and Ellis, who has co-sponsored this conference, and to the support of President Zimmerman, who also saw the, the importance of this light. The law school is, in my opinion, as I'm part of it, uh, without peer uh, by my colleagues, not me. I'm a, a poor add-on, Tom, to your faculty. David Bowman uh, did his PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, um, which we shared in common. Uh, I was there uh, a lot earlier <laughs> than David was. He's had an outstanding career. He's trained as an economist. He's an econometrician as well. He's got qualitative skills and quantitative skills. He spent more than three years trying to determine from the members of the Alternative Rates Committee a proper design for a new benchmark. And this, for those of you that have not been in, in consensus building, that's a hard job. Um, and we think that he has accomplished that task. We both agreed that a university forum like this might be a good place to reveal it and to talk about it. Uh, the press is in the audience. The conference is being video streamed, Tom, if I'm not mistaken. So I, we have a very exciting program, which the deputy mayor uh, alluded to, of academics, practitioners, etc. But please join me in welcoming Dr. David Bowman of the Federal Reserve Board of the United States. So is there a clicker for this? Clicker for Dr. Bowman? Or do we just. Okay, we're good. Yep. good. Well, I want to thank Richard for having me. Um, uh, I think it is important for everyone to be informed about where LIBOR is and the possibility that they may need to transition from it, at least um, seek to mitigate the risks to it. So I welcome the opportunity um, to. Um, to get to talk to a different kind of audience of um, you know, community banks and smaller banks. I think it is important um, for you all to be as informed as you can. Um, and Richard's just kind of a fun guy, so how can you, how can you say no to him? Um, so I'm going to talk to you a bit, um, and I'm going to hopefully leave uh, sufficient time for any questions that you have. Um, to give you some of my background, I kind of fell into the LIBOR work because at the Fed, I was one of the few people who knew how LIBOR worked um, around the time of 2012. Um, uh, and so I am the Fed's representative to the LIBOR Oversight Committee. Um, so uh, we have worked hard to strengthen LIBOR on that side of things. I've also been the sort of lead staff member from the Federal Reserve Board. Um, working with the FSB on their efforts and with the Alternative Reference Rates Committee um, and seeking an alternative to LIBOR. So I can probably answer most of your questions about any given side of it. 
Um, I'm going to start talking about LIBOR because that's important to understand. You can't really understand why the Federal Reserve would have convened the Alternative Reference Rates Committee or have thought to produce a rate like SOFR. I've sought some alternative to LIBOR um, until you understand um, what we see um, as the risks around LIBOR. Um, so one myth I want to dispel immediately is um, the ARC was not formed because of any concerns that the Federal Reserve had about the manipulation of LIBOR. The cases of manipulation were egregious, they were wrong, but they were also addressed. Um, the, the governance of LIBOR is now much stronger than it was you know, during the financial crisis. There are many more firewalls. So um, for the Federal Reserve, this is not about the fact that LIBOR had been manipulated in the past. What it is instead about is that um, there are other instabilities that we see around LIBOR that could cause it to stop. Um, and those are all about the fact that the market that underlies LIBOR is no longer very robust. There are very relatively few transactions now actually underlying LIBOR. Um, and that means um, uh, that effectively you have to rely on the expert judgment of the panel banks. You know, uh, Most of those panel banks, this is public, you can find it in IBA, most panel banks on most days don't report you know, a value of LIBOR based on any transaction that they have they did that day. They base their submission to LIBOR based on their expert judgment um, about uh, what rate they could have borrowed at if they had chosen to borrow. And that is fine, right? As far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, that is fine so long as it is well governed. Unfortunately, it's not that fine for the banks being asked to submit that, that expert judgment. And many of them have grown uncomfortable about continuing to do so. We've already seen two banks over the last two years leave the U.S. dollar panel. Um, and that was despite um, the many efforts that FCA and U.K. authorities and other authorities put into encouraging banks to remain on the panels over this period. So in my opinion, the official sector even more than IBA, the producer, the administrator of LIBOR, the official sector has held LIBOR together over this period. You know, Andrew Bailey in his speech from last July talked about how much effort they've had to put in into, into convincing banks to remain on. And it's just a fact that they cannot do that forever. They cannot do that indefinitely. Um, legally, they can only compel banks um, formally to submit for two years now under EU regulations. Um, and the kind of moral suasion that had been used before had stopped being as effective. You can see that by the fact that two banks had actually left the panels. And so it may be that LIBOR will continue past 2021. I hope that it does, um, but we can't guarantee it. And the fact is we see serious risks that it could stop. It may not stop immediately on January 3rd, 2022, but it could stop, say, over the next five years. There's a, certainly a material risk that that could happen. All right, and that is why we formed the Alternative Reference Rates Committee. So this slide will give you a sense about what I mean. Uh, most people don't have this data, uh, but we do. Um, so as far as I know, we have the most comprehensive data on funding markets uh, uh, for U.S. dollar. 
Um, and this is not just for the LIBOR banks. We have it for all the banks that report to us through the FR2420, and we uh, include CP and CD data in addition. So um, this is the histogram of the volume of daily uh, three-month unsecured funding transactions. So not just interbank, but any also unsecured funding transaction that we measure. Include CD, CP, everything. I've been generous. I have here doubled the panel, so it's not just the LIBOR banks, it's all the GSIPs, right? So even if you were to magically double the LIBOR panel, how many three-month dollar transactions would there be? Most days there'd be less than a billion, about 900, well, 900 million. If you want to know how much is underlying LIBOR, you'd divide that by half, so maybe 500 million. There are lots of days where it's 100 million, 200 million, 300 million. Some of them predictable, like you know, the day after Thanksgiving. Um, there's not going to be much volume. So there aren't enough transactions to make a transaction-based LIBOR. Even if you double the number of banks, even if, even if you included every bank you could find, there are not enough transactions. Um, you know, and so we looked. We certainly examined this as one potential way to reinforce LIBOR, but it cannot be done. Um, and that is why um, I think it's fair to say that if LIBOR is to continue, it has to rely on the willingness of banks to continue to submit expert judgment um, on a voluntary basis past 2021. And they may not be willing to. So why is this a problem? Why couldn't LIBOR not have been allowed to collapse in 2012? Um, well, there are an awful lot of contracts written on LIBOR. Our current estimate is that there are about 200 trillion worth of financial contracts written on LIBOR. Um, uh, most of that exposure, about 95%, is derivatives. Um, only about 10 trillion um, is in cash products, in loans or mortgages or floating rate notes, but 10 trillion is still a pretty big number. And a lot of those cash product trades are driving the derivative trades that we see. Um, uh, now, the fact is, um, and the sad fact is, that um, people did not, when they wrote these contracts, they did not envision a world in which LIBOR could ever stop. So um, if LIBOR did stop, say, today, um, a bunch of really terrible things would happen um, based on the contract language that people have. Um, and I think the U.S. and global financial stability would be seriously threatened um, by, that bad contract, by that bad contract language. And so that's where the main financial stability concern is. It's not, most people don't have much allegiance to LIBOR itself. So if there are no legacy trades, and I just said LIBOR stopped, I assume that people would find some new reference rate to trade. But what makes it really difficult is how intertwined LIBOR is in uh, you know, a host of legacy trades, and that will be very, very difficult to unwind. Uh, now, the last thing to say is, luckily, um, a lot of those legacy trades will roll off before the end of 2021. Uh, 92 or 93 percent of them would. So, for those of you who want to keep trading LIBOR, the key and what you need to do is you need to write better contract language. Uh, now into your new trades. You know, better language that tells you what is a more economically sensible, sensi sensible thing that's going to happen if LIBOR does stop. If you did that now, 
you would um, take care of the bulk of your risk. Um, and that would be fairly free. Um, there still would be a tail that we would have to deal with, but you could reduce your risk a lot if you'd only start writing better contract language into your new trades now. So that was your key thing to do. Okay, so this, I think, gives you a sense as to why in 2014 the Fed uh, convened the Alternative Reference Rates Committee. We didn't know that, say, Andrew Bailey's speech was going to happen. We didn't know that uh, BNP Paribas and then SOCGEN would leave the dollar panel, but we certainly saw that it could go that way. Um, so we formed the ARC in 2014, um, including Deidre, who's a, a, a long-standing member. Um, we asked them to do several things um, at the outset. One was to identify a robust alternative to U.S. dollar LIBOR that met, met best, best practices, including, say, the IASCO principles. Um, develop a plan for the voluntary adoption of that rate. So we didn't tell the ARC to assume that LIBOR would stop. We didn't tell them that we were going to prohibit anyone from trading LIBOR um, or that we were going to force anyone to trade the rate that they eventually chose. This is all voluntary but we need a plan to try to encourage um, the take-up of the rate so that there is an actively traded alternative to LIBOR if LIBOR does stop. And then three, as you can probably guess, um, identify best practices for uh, contract robustness. Um, so we formed the ARC in 2014. Um, just about six or seven weeks ago, we reconstituted the ARC um, for reasons that we'll get into. Um, basically, Following Andrew Bailey's speech, there was a lot more interest in what we were doing. So the first arc, we had to uh, convince people to join. Um, and the second arc, we had, to, we had to turn people down who wanted to join, which was not that fun. Um, uh, but there's much more interest now. And so the arc now is not just large global dealers. It is by side. It is many associations, including ICBA. A lot of the advisory group members that the ARC had formed are now formal members of the ARC. And a lot more firms are also working on uh, working groups that the ARC has set up. Okay, so um, as you probably know, the ARC shows um, the secured overnight financing rate, or SOFR, as its preferred alternative to U.S. dollar LIBOR. Um, it shows that about uh, in June of last year. Um, SOFR has just been published for the first time today, so it was very nice to see that up on the screen. It's got a Bloomberg ticker and I think a Reuters ticker, so you can find it. Um, it is a uh, repo rate based on overnight treasury repo transactions. It is the broadest repo rate in existence. It includes not only tri-party GC trades, but also uh, bilateral uh, treasury repo trades. The ARC um, considered uh, a wide variety of potential alternatives and developed um, very clear criteria to judge them all against it. Um, uh, so, you know, in, in addition to overnight secured rates, it considered overnight unsecured rates, such as the overnight bank funding rate. Maribor had not been around at the time that they started this. Um, T-bill or, or bond rates, term OAS rates, term unsecured lending rates. Um, at the end of the day, I think mostly because of robustness, um, the ARC members chose SOFR um, 
as being probably the most robust alternative that you could possibly find. And a majority, a clear majority of the advisory group members to the ARC also prefer to repo rate, I think, for the same reasons. Uh, now, one thing to say is um, LIBOR is more than just U.S. dollar LIBOR. It's got five currencies now, including sterling and yen and euro uh, and Swiss franc. So similar efforts have um, been going on in most of the other countries. So there's a group like the ARC uh, in the United Kingdom, the Working Group on Sterling Risk-Free Reference Rates in Japan and in Switzerland. The Europeans um, have just formed a group like the ARC. Uh, and one thing to say is each of those groups so far um, have chosen some kind of overnight rate. Um, either secured or unsecured, depending on their local market conditions. But each has been driven to an overnight rate because that's really where the transactions are. Um, I'll, you know, that point will become clear in the next slide. So this is the average volume of transactions, daily transactions, in SOFR last year. Um, it would average $754 billion. Um, I think in recently it's been closer to 900 billion a day, every day. All right, so the overnight bank funding rate is about 197 billion. That's come down a bit now, it's about 150. Fed funds effective, which you probably all know and love, is about 79, 75 billion. And then we take a big drop down. So even T bills, which is a very liquid market, if you think about how many transactions there are in three months T bills a day, fewer than you might have thought, um, only about $13 billion a day. And there's a wide amount of seasonality around that. You have a lot of trades immediately after an auction or just before, and then they kind of wind down by the end of that period. And then everything else, so any kind of unsecured term funding, um, not enough to um, support something that needs to be able to stand the weight of $200 trillion on it. Right? So there is space for many different kinds of reference rates. I think people did not pay very much attention to them. They didn't keep the lighthouses up you know, very well or think about it that much. Um, they do need to think about it more now. Um, the Fed is not saying that um, there can't be a variety of you know, reference rates out there. We're not saying that everyone has to trade SOFR um, or that they can't even trade LIBOR. But if you want something that is going to replace LIBOR potentially, it's got to be the most robust thing you can find. And so these markets cannot support $200 trillion. Um, but this one can. Um, and that is, I think, a large part of why the ARC chose it. So, um, SOFR, um, uh, there's history going back to 2014. Um, there's a little missing gap of history between today's publication and the last data release that New York put out, but they'll fill in that history, I think, over the next couple of weeks. So you'll have a full history going back to 2014. And then we've got data that's indicative going back further, but going back to the 1990s, if you want. Um, what does SOFR do? So SOFR tends to trade in the middle of the range of other repo rates that you might know. So you might know the Bank of New York Mellon uh, repo rate, which is a pure GC rate. Um, those types of rates tend to trade a little bit lower than SOFR. The GCF rate trades a little bit higher and is more volatile. SOFR is the black line. It trades in the middle. 
It is not as volatile as GCF, um, but you can see some movement around quarter ends. Um, and it tends to trade close to the middle of the range of the Fed's monetary, monetary policy target you know, window. So it does what you would want a kind of generic uh, interest reference rate to do. It um, is close to monetary policy. Um, it's a good representation of a risk-free rate. Now, importantly, um, uh, if you think about, say, Fed Funds Futures or uh, Fed Funds OIS, um, they also reference an overnight rate, right, Fed Funds. They don't pay off based on just one day's value of the Fed Funds. They pay off uh, based on an average of the Fed Funds rate over the month or a compound average over a quarter or a year. That's the way that SOFR instruments will also be structured, so a SOFR OIS or a SOFR futures will pay a compound average of that overnight rate over three months, right? So SOFR is the reference rate, but the floating rate is actually a compound average of SOFR. Um, and that's what contracts will do. So while SOFR on a day-to-day basis does have some volatility to it, less than GCF, but it still has some, what's a compound average of SOFR look like? Well, it looks like going to look something like this black line, where I'm using the synthetic history of SOFR to go back further, the synthetic history of a overnight treasury repo rate. So this is actually very smooth. It is smoother than three-month LIBOR. It's about as smooth as uh, three-month three -month compound Fed funds effective. And it's actually pretty close to the compound uh, three-month average of Fed funds effective. So. Um, although SOFR is a secured rate and Fed Funds Effective is an unsecured rate, they move pretty close together because neither of them really have any credit component to them. They're both overnight. They both move basically with the Fed's mon monetary policy target. There's not really a huge difference between them. And I would not expect there to, there to be really a huge difference between SOFR OIS or SOFR Futures and Fed Funds Effective um, OIS or Fed Funds Effective Futures. Um, uh, so um, I think that's important to understand that you may know a bit more about SOFR than you think even though we've just begun publishing it today um, the other thing to say is um, uh, SOFR obviously does, it is a risk free rate so it does not move with LIBOR it did not it would not have blown out during the financial crisis and did not blow out during you know, the euro area crisis or of money market reform um, or recently. So it doesn't move like LIBOR. Um, and there's some people out there who think that they need LIBOR because they're a non-financial corporate and they borrow unsecured and LIBOR is an unsecured rate. But um, if you try to get some data on what, say, non-financial corporate borrowing costs are, and here I'm using the Fed's non-financial CP series. Now, there's this black line. We don't publish it every day because they're not transactions every day, but we publish it most days when there are transactions. It doesn't move with LIBOR either. Right? It didn't blow out during the crisis um, or at these other periods. It moves a lot closer to an OIS rate, to a risk-free rate, than to anything. It also doesn't move very much with treasuries, which I think is one reason why the ARC didn't choose treasuries. 
They wanted something in the middle. So I believe that, so for OAS, is actually going to be a lot closer to a corporate funding cost, a non-financial corporate fund funding cost, than LIBOR is, um, even though it's a secured rate. So there are people that um, can trade instruments based off of SOFR. I think most derivatives, which are used to OIS contracts, can trade based on SOFR. Um, there are some people out there who are very used to LIBOR as a forward-looking term rate, including, um, I think, most predominantly people in the corporate loans, where their systems have been set up for LIBOR, um, and they don't know how to, say, uh, borrow in an overnight rate environment, either in arrears or in some backward-looking average. It's just a foreign concept to them. Uh, the ARC, as part of its transition plan, um, has put in a final step, which would be to develop a SOFR term rate. This would be a forward-looking term rate. It would be based off um, SOFR derivatives, so SOFR futures or SOFR OIS. So um, once those markets develop, it should be possible um, to build this kind of term rate. Um, it will be more like LIBOR, and that will be forward-looking, and it will be a term rate. It will not be like LIBOR in that it won't have a credit component, but it will be closer to what you're used to. Um, there are some caveats to this, of course. So the term rate's going to need to be IOSCO compliant. So it is contingent upon SOFR derivatives markets developing in the way that we hope that they will. The other thing is that SOFR derivatives, you know, to do this, a SOFR derivatives market needs to be really highly robust, right? So most derivatives are going to need to be based off SOFR. If they are, then you can build the term rate. And if you do, then some cash products like loans can use the term rate. But not everything can reference the term rate because then it just collapses. You need SOFR as the base and then the SOFR derivatives as the thing atop that and then the little term rate thing on top of that for it to be stable. But if people are willing to do that, then we can build the term rate. So um, that gives you a bit of sense about SOFR. Um, uh, I said that the uh, ARC was also asked to develop a plan for uh, the voluntary adoption of the rate. They did do that. We call it the PACE transition plan. It involves moving price alignment interest and discounting at the clearinghouses um, from Fed funds effective to SOFR over time. But it is designed in a way that it doesn't touch the valuation of your legacy contracts. PAI and discounting would only change over time for new trades, not for your legacy trades. So um, it is the least disruptive thing that we could possibly think of, right? This plan um, leaves your legacy book unchanged. There's no valuation discontinuities to your legacy book. Um, but over time, PAI and, and uh, uh, discounting will move more and more to SOFR, and that will give people a robust need to continue to trade SOFR over time. Um, now, we're already ahead of schedule, I'm pleased to report. So, SOFR was produced today. Uh, CME will begin uh, offering SOFR futures trading on May 7th, about a month from now. Uh, we had a step which was going to be um, trading of uncleared SOFR OIS. Um, nobody really wants to trade uncleared, and we understood that, so we wanted to shorten the time as much as we can. I think we have succeeded. So both LCH and CME hope to offer cleared trading of SOFR OIS and basis swaps in Q3. And assuming that they can, um, we can kind of just skip that step two 
um, and be about six months ahead already on step three. So we're making progress, um, uh, at least in building out the infrastructure, and ARC firms, I think, are ready to begin trading, and CME and LCH are obviously ready to begin. Um, so I think we're off to a good start. Uh, so the creation, then we'd have these other steps, moving price alignment, interest, and discounting. The term rate would have to come at the end of this, and that would be by the end of 2021, uh, which is uncomfortably close to the time you know that Andrew Bailey has bought for us with his four-and-a-half-year agreement with the um, LIBOR submitting banks. We realize that, um, but you can't hurry it along. What I always emphasize to people is if they're willing to take up SOFR um, trading, at least a little bit, maybe not for this audience, but some of the bigger firms out there, um, some of the buy side um, with large exposures to LIBOR that, and, you know, who need to mitigate those risks, I think people have a lot of incentive to give this market a good send-off um, because LIBOR may not be around and they do need an alternative. If they step in, um, this market can develop pretty quickly. Um, which means we can get to a term rate more quickly, and that's just going to be good for everybody because then you have a longer period where you could have some LIBOR loans going out or some LIBOR mortgages along with some SOFR loans and some SOFR mortgages. So you'd have a longer parallel run. You could see what the spreads should be you know, relative to each other. So if LIBOR ever did stop, there'd be a lot less disagreement about what a move from a LIBOR loan or mortgage to a SOFR loan or mortgage should be, you know, what would be economically fair. So the longer the parallel run, um, smoother things are going to be, and therefore I encourage everyone to um, consider taking up some SOFR trading. Okay, so then um, this is maybe where it gets interesting. Um, you know, how do uh, the legacy contracts and language come into that? Um, so as I said, we'll start with derivatives, which is all, are all under is the definitions. Um, uh, so you've got about 190 trillion of derivatives referencing U.S. dollar LIBOR under those definitions. What do those definitions tell you to do if LIBOR stops? They tell you to call two London banks or two New York banks and ask them to quote you a rate over the phone. Um, so maybe in 1987 they would have been willing to quote you a rate over the phone, but I can imagine you know, that they won't even pick up the phone. Um, right? I mean, who, would, who in the right mind, I mean, this is prejudicial, but uh, you know, there's a lot of legal risk that you could be taking on by picking up that phone and giving a number in this day and age. So um, our assessment is you're not very likely to get quotes. One person has uh, termed this as, you know, phone of, the phone your friend um, uh, backup. So let's say that's not going to work. What then do the definitions tell you happens to your derivatives? They don't tell you what happens to your derivatives. They don't tell you what you are to pay or what you to receive on 190 trillion gross notional of um, U.S. dollar derivatives. Uh, so that's a mess. Right? Um, uh, people will sue each other. Um, if contract frustration cases began to be won, um, you could potentially claw back any payments that you'd made in the past. So not only would you be uncertain about what you were to pay or receive or whether you were net, um, you might be uncertain about what you had paid or had received in the past. So it could be very, very ugly. 
for this reason, we asked ISDA, um, the FSB asked ISDA um, in late 2016 to begin working on new definitions that would have more robust fallbacks in. And the sequence would be they would, would introduce new a new definition for new trades and then a protocol that if people signed it would incorporate those new defini definitions into their legacy trades. So um, ISDA can't um, uh, on its own change the contract in your legacy trades. Those are already made. They're covered by the um, original ISDA language. If you want to trade them, you'd have to sign a protocol. Um, so I hope that when the protocol comes out, you do consider it. ISDA is working on this. Um, they've already determined the basic triggers, you know, a permanent discontinuation of LIBOR um, or some announcement by a government body like FCA or IBA that LIBOR was to stop. Um, they've determined the rates that uh, would be the serve as a basis for the fallback would be SOFR for U.S. dollar and the other risk-free rates that the other currency groups have chosen. The really hard part, of course, is that any rate is going to be different from LIBOR, anything you fall back to. So you need to have some spread adjustment there, right, or else you can have a lot of discontinuity in valuation. So that's the hard part. How do you figure out what that spread adjustment is? There are lots of ways that you can do it that are going to get you pretty close and keep you pretty safe. But they need to go out and uh, consult on them um, and get as much buy-in buy for whatever uh, they come up with as they can. And again, this would be purely voluntary. Okay, so what about other contracts? Um, and what, do their, what does their language say happens if LIBOR stops? Well, many of them have the same pull a couple banks in New York or London as their first fallback. Um, uh, I'll go, I guess, from the good news to the bad. So the best news is, is mortgages, where they'd seen other reference rates fail. So they have pretty good language allowing the note holder to name a successor rate. So that's good. Unfortunately, the contracts don't say anything about whether the spread can be adjusted, um, which is not so good, <laughs> right? <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were close, but they didn't get there all the way. Um, uh, but, you know, is, we'll, we'll, I'll take what I can get at this point. Floating rate notes, um, typical, typical, typical contract language, has the same kind of phone your friend thing. Um, uh, and then if no one provides any quotes, it just converts to fixed rate at the last published value of LIBOR. So that's not very good. There are lots of people that hold the notes that aren't allowed to hold long-term fixed rate instruments. So they'd have to sell. Um, lots of people, you know, they bought a floating rate instrument. They don't really want a fixed rate instrument. Um, so that's not good for either side. And here I think people need to be reasonable about all this. You know, taking a, fix, a floating rate instrument and converting it to fixed at some rate that you don't know in the future, that's not good for either the, you know, person who sold it or the person who bought it. So there ought to be, in my opinion, a lot of scope for people to be kind of grown up and just find some better language. That is my hope. Um, securitizations, um, they tend to go to fix two at the last published value of LIBOR. Corporate loans, um, they go to a floating rate, but the floating rate is prime, which is a couple hundred basis points above LIBOR. Um, so you're going to have a lot of borrowers see um, a very steep jump in their borrowing costs under current contract language. So none of these things fit together. None of them um, 
you know, you can see a lot of broken hedges or potentially very broken hedges, um, a lot of mismatches, um, and a lot of very unhappy people. So one thing that the ARC is going to focus on this year is, as I said, a lot of this risk could be taken care of pretty cheaply if people would just start writing in better contract language now, right? Because a lot of this stuff will roll off. So that's one of the things that the ARC is going to emphasize this year. Um, you can understand why. Um, and I'm happy to say that um, people are beginning to change their language. So um, most broadly syndicated loans now allow the uh, borrower or the borrower's agent to name a rate, um, sometimes allowing the majority of the lenders to um, object if they don't like the rate um, or you know, required, require their assent. It's a bit better. Most bilateral loans, maybe which is key to this room, um, don't appear to have new language. So I think that's something that we need to work on. Um, about a third of floating rate notes seem to be going out with new language that allows a calculation agent discretion to uh, name a new rate. Might tie it down to the rate chosen by the ARC or by you know, some other body or you know, that meets market standard market practice at the time. Um, but there's still two-thirds going out under the old language. And again, I think this is something if you all are issuing floating rate debt, I would strongly encourage you to think about the language that you're using, especially if you're issuing past 2021. Um, in terms of securitizations, um, some CMBS, we're seeing some new languages, CMBS. RMBS already had pretty good language, but they're, um, some of them are uh, writing in even more flexibility about their ability to change the rate, um, sometimes to change the spread. Um, much less change in fallback language uh, around ABS. Um, so as I said, we have an ARC 2.0 now. We have a ton more working groups um, than we did before uh, because at this point, after the Andrew Bailey speech, we only have you know, four years of guaranteed safety. And um, even though you know, I'm not here to tell you that I know LIBOR is going to stop after that point, um, I kind of have to assume that it could, <laughs> right? So we need to, everyone here needs to prepare and you need to mitigate your risks. Either you can close out or you can get better contract language, but you should do one of those two things. Don't just leave yourself unexpe uh, unprotected over this period. That would be crazy. So we have you know, a number of working groups on derivatives, a number of working groups on uh, cash products, um, legal and regulatory tax and accounting issues. Um, it is now a massive undertaking. Uh, and I hope that um, with everybody's help, uh, we can, in fact, make sure that the financial system is protected by the time we get to the end of 2021. I hope that LIBOR continues past that point, but one way or the other, you should protect yourselves. So that concludes it, and I have a little bit of time to ask questions. Um, question for the audience, please? Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, uh, I mean, I need him to repeat it. All right. Your question, 
Your question was, if we'd had uh, a rate like SOFR um, at the time of the financial crisis, would that have allowed us to avoid a pro- TARP? I, I can see where, with Ameripor, we've got a, a bilateral credit transition that would help. I don't see how SOFR would. Well, um, LIBOR wasn't you know, a key cause of the financial crisis. Um, uh, if you believe that some banks did shade the rate down um, over that period, that kind of helped some borrowers during that period. So I don't think that LIBOR and the financial crisis had super tight links. So I think that the financial crisis would have happened um, you know, regardless of whether LIBOR had these instabilities or there were some other reference rate in place. I guess you might be asking some other question that Yeah, I think um, it's important to emphasize that SOFR is the collateral's treasuries. It's not some of the other stuff that people were repoing at the time. So the treasury repo market did not experience a run. Some of the other markets, you know, repo based on uh, equities or other illiquid instruments, they did did experience a run. Or mortgages, right. So, um, you know, treasuries are the highest form of collateral that we have. Um, and that market did just fine during the financial crisis. Um, I would be concerned if SOFR Silver, Silver were based on some other kind of collateral. Dr. Bowman, are there any small or mid-sized banks? Are there any small or mid-sized banks on the arc? Um, there are not. Now, um, the ICBA is now a member of the ARC, the Independent Community Bankers Association. Um, and there are a number of um, smaller and uh, mid-sized banks on some of the working group committees. So U.S. Bank Corp, Comerica, Rocklands, um, have all joined um, uh, the, the business loans group. No, no, no. People laughed. Rocklands is. We have some smaller ones. What I'm wondering is, do you feel maybe there's a disconnect between SOFR and its constituency and small and mid-sized banks and their constituency? Yeah. So one thing to say is, you know, ARC 1.0 was clearly the major global derivatives dealers. And there was a reason for that. Um, Derivatives were the key source of the risk. And you could imagine that many derivatives could move, not all of them had to, but could move to a new thing. And quite frankly, most people that we tried to talk to in cash products, um, uh, independent of their size, um, they were just going to keep using LIBOR. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, they didn't, they weren't really interested in an alternative to LIBOR. So we tried to address, you know, the key risk at that time in um, the largest exposure where it could be moved. You know, since the Andrew Bailey speech, lots of people now are thinking about their own risks in ways that they weren't thinking about before. They do 
you know, they do understand that they have these risks now. And so we have tried to widen out um, the arc um, uh, to address their needs. I don't know that the ARC would have chosen a different rate than SOFR. There aren't that many choices out there for them to have chosen. I understand that. I think yeah. that one of the concerns is that uh, you know, it's the largest banks, the derivative dealers, international banks that are on the committee. Well, that's not true anymore. That was true. Okay. But that's not true anymore. I, I, I guess where I'm going with this is the banks that are on the yeah. committee seem to have really good access to the repo markets where these rates are set and determined uh, and all that kind of stuff. A lot of us really don't. I mean, now when you want to do repo, you go back to the dealer you bought a security from, and they may or may not allow you to do that. So it's very limited for small and mid-sized banks, not so for most of the entities that are part of the ARC. Yeah, well, let me just say one thing. So you may not be able to see this now, but um, when we threw off, I mean, there's a, uh, there are still some major global dealers on here. Um, there's a lot of buy side. Um, there are a lot of associations, government finance officers association, ICBA, as I mentioned, National Association of Corporate Treasurers. So um, uh, I think it is much more diverse, um, and we are trying to, um, uh, and the working groups are more diverse, so we are trying to incorporate that. Um, I take your point about the repo market. Um, one thing is, though, that it is, there are a lot of different types of firms that are active in the repo market. They all may be larger than a uh, community bank. But um, you know, insurance companies, pensions, a lot of different types of firms use repo as an active source of funding, um, uh, you know, which is different from overnight bank funding rate or Fed funds. Um, so we got, you know, there was some democracy at least along those lines. Whether SOFR, you know, fits the needs of a really small bank, a community bank, or not, whether a Maribor is better for you, you know, I'm agnostic on. I I'm talking about not just the smallest of banks. We're a $33 billion bank. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't want to... <laughs> I get in trouble when I talk about size, you know, <laughs> of banks. I didn't, I didn't want to um, use U.S. Bank Corp. as an uh, example. Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I know SOFR is going to be pretty close to Fed funds. So if you do any kind of prime loans... Um, then I think that you could probably, at the end of the day, do a SOFR loan. Cause but, that's SOFR, but the published rate today was 125 125 I think, for no. SOFR. I mean, eight. Isn't that what it was? 1-8. On 125 on Bloomberg? I'll have to figure that out. Okay. 1-8. Okay. So that's more aligned with Fed funds. Yeah. Uh, here. Um, uh, I don't know if I could do my view expand, but you can see. So, so far it's the black line, uh, and it, you're not, I'm not showing Fed funds on this one, but it is in the middle of the monetary policy range. And if you look at the average, yeah, so far it was a bit high today. It says 125 on on this self. <laughs> okay. I don't know. So anyway, that, put, putting that aside, and I don't mean to dominate this. I mean, a lot of people probably have questions. Uh, so I'll just limit myself to, to one more. You mentioned the volatility in the repo market at quarter ends and, you know, this day-to-day -day volatility. How do you address that? I mean, I get for term stuff, it might be round, you know, rounding and smoothing and that kind of stuff. But on the day-to-day -day 
you know, quarter in, which is probably one of the most important segments of time for the, the folks in this room for financial reporting purposes, how do you address the volatility issue with SOFR? Right. So, as I said, financial contracts um, uh, will reference some average of SOFR. So, like in OIS or futures, it would be in arrears. Um, if you want to do a corporate loan off of SOFR, you could either do a backward-looking average. You know, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that forward-looking term rate, but it would be a backward-looking average. That would be like that black line. It would be smooth. The day-to-day fluctuations don't show up in a three-month average, or or a term rate. Or you could use the forward-looking term rate when it's available, which would also be smooth. No, so I'm distinguishing between the reference rate. The reference rate is an overnight rate. The floating rate on a loan or a derivative, I hope, would be an average over some period of time of that overnight rate. So you could offer a mortgage on a three-month backward-looking average of SOFR. It would look like the black line there. It would be smooth. Um, you know, in the day-to-day, day-to-day volatility, it doesn't matter for that average. That's what I would have you do. I would not have you do an, a mortgage based on one day's observation of SOFR. That would be... I'm talking about day-to-day, day-to-day liquidity trading, one-day trades. In the repo market? Or in the bank-to-bank market? Um, well, the bank-to-bank market would be, if it's unsecured, it would be uh, for rate-based, like Maribor or Fed funds. On top of SOFR, presumably, yeah. I guess where I'm going with this is, it, it, it seems like... I guess it seems like, you know, if, if, if this is a replacement for the day-to-day funding, right, like, like, like Fed funds, that sort of thing, there's a volatility component to it. So this is, a, this is not a replacement to the Fed funds market or the Eurodollar market or the Ameribor market. Um, those markets will continue. If you fund unsecured in any of those markets or you um, loan money to other banks, you know, in those markets, you, I would assume you will continue to do that. SOFR will just be based off the overnight treasury repo market and the trades in that market. Which may or may not be the same as Fed funds. They won't be the same as Fed funds. They'll be pretty close on average, but on a day-to-day basis, they won't be the same. Uh, you noted that uh, ISDA is working on uh, updated definitions and a protocol to amend derivative documents. Uh, is the ARC or one of the working groups working on market standard language that could be used to amend cash products so that uh, there's some uniform, uniformity across the market uh, in terms of what's being used in all these other instruments? We're thinking, they are thinking about that issue right now. So what we're having the working groups um, think about at the moment are you know, guidelines or best practices or principles that you might have for that contract language in a cash product. Those are all bilateral contracts, right? So you can have the same kind of ISDA process. But there is a lot of desire for uh, gravitating towards some consistent language across products and to some extent across firms. Um, so I don't know if at the end of the day the ARC will um, decide 
at some stage to recommend specific language, but at least we are thinking about you know what kind of principles or guidelines could we put out as best practice that people could, could consider. Okay, thank you so much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.